so you know for me CRISPR reveals that um, earlier ideas about the power of DNA to, to make us who we are might be sort of oversized. That's Dr. Aben Kirksey, an anthropologist at Deakin University, which has campuses in and near Melbourne, Australia. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. Aben Kirksey wrote a book called The Mutant Project. It's an important read. It's dedicated to Lulu and Nana, two of the three children whose genomes were edited before their birth. The CRISPR babies were born in 2018. They are now toddlers. This is part three in a podcast series called The CRISPR Children, about how these children are, to try and understand how they came about, and to try and collect some background on them, any health risks they might face due to the gene editing. There is certainly a lot of rumor and secrecy swirling around these children. I published an article called The CRISPR Children in Nature Biotechnology. It's a piece I've been working on for three years. I just wanted to find out how the children are, and according to sources I can't name, the children are doing okay. It's hard to assess the potential health implications gene editing has on them, and the story and other podcast episodes go into more detail on that. In reporting the story, I was surprised to find that a lot of scientists just didn't want to talk to me. It's unusual given how much uproar there was over these gene-edited children when the news broke about them in November 2018. But fortunately, a number of people did speak with me. I am grateful to them and to my editors at Nature Biotechnology who have been supportive of this project. In the notes to the show, you will find links to that piece and to a number of articles and videos on the subject, and I hope to keep curating that. This episode is with Dr. Aben Kirksey, an anthropologist. His book, The Mutant Project, presents his thoughts on many aspects of gene editing, the kind of gene editing that is not heritable, that's somatic gene editing. And it's about heritable gene editing, the kind that was performed in China that led to three gene-edited children with genomic changes made in the lab and that would be passed down to their children if they decide later to have any. There's Lulu and Nana and a third child whom I call Amy. We're, we're living through a moment that's very much analogous to the birth of the first so-called test tube baby, um, Louise Brown. I, I think some of the parallels are the ways that uh, the very same language was used in, in describing her birth and their birth. So um, people called her a Franken-baby. Louise Brown was born on July 25, 1978. In a book about her that she co-wrote, Louise Brown says she got her first marriage proposal when she was five days old. It was one of 400 letters her mother received after she had given birth to her daughter and was still at Oldham Hospital in Lancashire in England. Louise Brown's parents were invited to talk shows and traveled around the world. So many people were interested in seeing Louise Brown, the first test tube baby. Headlines screamed, the lovely Louise, a miracle called Louise, the baby of the century, and super babe. More mail poured into the Brown household. Lots of fan mail. But there was also hate mail. Some people called Louise Brown Franken-baby. Lulu and Nana were also called Franken-babies. But none of them were humanoids from the lab of a fictional scientist called Victor Frankenstein. These children are real and deserve their privacy and dignity. They deserve our interest 
and empathy and thoughtfulness. The reactions to the gene-edited babies, now children around three years old, have been entirely different from the reactions to Louise Brown, who herself is now an adult. There are many reasons for this difference. Louise Brown's genome was not edited before her birth. Lulu and Nana's genome was edited before their birth. And there are many other differences between the births. Here's Aben Kirksey. And, and I think one key difference between the birth of Louise Brown and the birth of Lulu and Nana is that Louise Brown was a public figure from the moment she was born. There, there were journalists there, um, you know, a, a fire alarm was pulled and somebody snapped her, her picture as amidst all the chaos. And, and for me, the privacy um concerns about about these two babies um the the secrecy both around the initial experiment and also around um the the condition of the two children now is is vitally important mm. you know um these these children um now you know a- actual human beings did not ask to be born into this situation they're living in a situation not of their own choosing um, their parents consented to it, um, but but they did not. And you know, it's it's an open question. You know, if, if I were a parent, um, the question would be, you know, how how and when would I inform my my child that that you're different, that you're special, that that you're um, uh, you've you've had this this procedure done that that makes you um, different from all of your peers? Like when when do you have that conversation? And, and I think, you know, right now, the parents, the lab, um, I, I think the government as well is invested in preserving the privacy of these individuals. And I think those privacy concerns must be, be held um, uh, together with the desires of the international scientific community that wants to know, you know, there, there's an intense curiosity about um the health and well-being of these children from the public from from the scientific community but but i think it would be wrong to turn these these children in, into lifelong experimental subjects um, um you know you've seen quite prominent scientists weigh in and and be insistent that um access uh to specimens from these children be granted to, to senior scientists and and i think at, at this point you know recognizing the rights of the parents to, to refuse. You know, from my perspective, um, you know, ensuring that these children have ongoing access to uh, health care, ongoing access to um, expert opinions who will be able to offer them consequential advice about, um, you know, medical decisions that, that they'll be making in the coming months, in the coming years, you know, that that is very important. But I, I think protecting their privacy is, um, for me, a, a, a really primary concern. Privacy is paramount, of course. In his book, Aben Kirksey talks about the parents of these children, about the lab of Dr. He Jean-Cui responsible for bringing about these children, and a third girl who is the daughter of different parents. I call her Amy. None of these names are the real names. As I mentioned in other podcast episodes, it's likely that the intended edits didn't quite work. The girls are most likely genetically mosaic. Some of their cells contain purposely altered genes and some do not. 
and I asked some scientists how one might be able to tell the parents and later the children when they are grown about any risks they might run into because of this mosaicism and because of the gene editing more generally. It's not easy to assess. Aben Kirksey says that at one point, the children will probably be told that they are different from other children. He was a participant in the conference in Hong Kong in November of 2018, when He Zhang presented the research in his lab at Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen, China, that led to the children. The news about the children's birth caused an uproar, also in China. Um, you know, what we're seeing on WeChat and, and Weibo, which is another... Uh social media platform and, and even conventional print media um, that has archives on the internet, uh, government censors are, are um, removing uh, stories and posts as quickly as they appear. So I've, I've had a research assistant that's, that's been working with me, um, you know, just, just in the last couple of weeks and in the last couple of months. Um, the, the hashtag, I, I'm actually going to forget exactly which hashtag had so many hits, but um, one one had 1.8 billion hits on Weibo. Boom. Um, but if if you look at that at that hashtag, it only indexes things that go back the last couple of weeks. So the hashtag's still there. You can still see traces that you know a lot of people cared about this, but there's there's sort of this vanishing memory and. Um, my my research assistant found this one very self-reflexive post about um, about a month ago now. This was before the news broke uh, about the sentencing, and uh, it, it was just kind of this open rhetorical question: Does does anyone remember Dr. Ha? What has become of the two babies? Huh. And you know that that post is gone too now. So it's it's. Um, Trying to reckon with the ephemeral memory of this moment um, is, um, for me, a really interesting cultural phenomenon. Um, mm. You know how how memory is being actively managed and curated, um, how uh, there's a, an opacity to the process. Uh, you know this this really speaks to to, to broader issues in, in China relating to, to censorship and. Um, what is knowable, what what can be collectively remembered. Um, so, so I think it, it's going to be very interesting going forward. He Jean-Cui is in jail, as are two members of his lab. He didn't work in complete isolation. There were people in China and elsewhere who knew about the work and the plans of Dr. He. Yeah, Dr. He definitely had some very powerful backers within the Chinese Communist Party, and, and he worked with them. Um, he gave them foreknowledge in the same way that he gave the Associated Press foreknowledge of, of the birth and, and planned to release um, very much with, with blessings from some important political factions in, in Beijing. Um, I, I think as, um, and, and, you know, as, as a speaker at the summit, I, I uh, watched kind of the public takedowns emerge in real time. Um, so one of the very important um uh, social media outlets in, in China is, is WeChat. It's, it's sort of a hybrid between um, maybe like Facebook Messenger and, and sort of the more public um, walls of, of Facebook. And um, in, in the first few hours, uh, members of um, uh, the, the established uh, Chinese scientific community um, started issuing very public 
takedowns, um, addressing point by point uh, deficiencies that they saw in, in the experiment. Um, you know, many people pointed to the fact that this was a technique that many people knew how to do, but um, that others were proceeding with more prudence and caution because they were very well aware that um, society was not ready for this, that there wasn't um, a, a broad consensus about um, if it was um, reasonable to move forward, what a good genetic uh, target would be. Um, but, but you know, really, I, I think um, a lot of people were were um, pointing out that you know the, the public wasn't educated on this and, and hadn't been brought along um, with with these latest advances in science. And, and I think it's it's a much broader um, lesson to the scientific community at large. Um, in, in 1958, an influential philosopher named Hannah Arendt pointed out that you know scientists were already starting to imagine what she called future man. You know, taking um, uh, genes from people of demonstrated ability, combining them in a test tube, and you know, pr producing um, uh, you know these these new synthetic humans or, or future man. And she she insisted that um, decisions about how to deploy technologies, powerful new technologies, whether they're uh, military technologies for nuclear weapons or technologies that could be used to redesign the human species. But these aren't decisions that should be left to scientists alone. And, you know, I think with nu nuclear scientists, we saw sort of after the fact of a, a recognition, you know, we need to work on new multilateral legal instruments. We need to work on, um, you know, new ways of, of governing this emergent technology. And, and I think, if anything, this, this experiment by Dr. Ha has, has produced a similar reckoning. So, you know, uh, Chinese society was not ready for this. Um, the English-speaking world was not ready for this. But but it's catalyzed this this global dialogue with the WHO committee, um, different uh, national legislatures, different um, sort of administrative procedures being put put in place all around the world to to try to carefully work through the necessary legal, ethical, and social questions. As, as we, we think about, you know, what this technology can do. Um, but also should, should we use this technology to do, to do new things? Perhaps this experiment is asking society at large, this question that crops up regularly in science and technology, should we do what we are, or some of us are capable of doing? As with most of these types of questions, it's one with layers and there are layers to the answers too. In his book, Eben Kirksey writes about Harmonicare Shenzhen Women's and Children's Hospital, which he visited. This hospital's general manager had apparently approved Dr. He Zhangkui's experiments. Eben Kirksey describes in his book a hospital floor devoted to, as it was called on the website at the time, American Medicine and Only for You. Harmonicare Medical is a group of hospitals devoted to, quote, high-end maternal and child health. There is some indication that some of the experiments by the He Zhangkui lab took place at Harmonicare. The hospital denies this, and it issued a statement that it never participated in any clinical operation related to the gene-edited babies incident, as my colleague at Science, John Cohen, reported in a great article called Inside the Circle of Trust, published in August of 2019. 
The hospital also says the experiment did not have ethical approval. There are documents showing signatures indicating ethical approval by the hospital. There's a signature by a Harmonicare administrator. The hospital says the documents are forged. Truth? It's hard to know. But the experiments happened, and there are children who resulted and who are growing up the first children with genomes edited before their birth. Over this experiment, Hejan Kui and two members of his lab have been sent to jail. The sentencing was made public on December 31st, 2019. He was likely detained some time before the trial. It was not an open open trial. So as, as I understand it, um, defendants um, have, have an opportunity to either have a public trial or not. And, and in this case, um, a decision was made to, to keep the, the trial private. Part, I, I think it's at the discretion of, of, of the defendant. Um, huh. Okay. And yeah, I mean, the, the Chinese judicial system um, uh, can detain people up to six months um, without charging them. Um, so there's a very various different kinds of, of detention practices that are used. And um, in, in this particular case, um, you know, uh, Dr. Ha was 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 being held while while they. Um, sort of evaluated the, the different charges and, and made a decision as, as to whether or not to press charges. Um, so, yeah, it, it seems like, um, uh, you know, he, he's, he's going to be serving three, three years, uh, from, from the time of sentencing. Um, and it, it seems like the other two individuals are, um, kind of getting some time served, uh, not, knocked off the sentence, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I understand that he's serving the time from from sentencing. Um, but but yeah, during during the pre trial detention stage, um, there's there's pretty broad um, uh, uh, investigative and detention authorities that that the government has. Um, and there, there's been legal reforms in recent years in China um, aimed at increasing the transparency of of just that pretrial detention. Um, I, I think one um, notable re- recent reform is, is that it is limited to, to six months. Um, uh, but, but yeah, there, there's still a lot of um, uh, problems with the system that are very, you know, it's a very different system than ours where we would have ready access to a lawyer um, and uh, access, you know, uh, and an ability to communicate with family members. Um, um, I'm mostly relying on on some work um, by an Australian legal scholar based in Melbourne. Um, uh, so she's she's written a couple of, of articles that, um, yeah, kind of frame these, these recent reforms to uh, just judicial process in China. Chinese authorities did apparently compile a report about the events. My queries asking about that report are not being answered. So for now, that report is not public. The report possibly played a role in the way the trial unfolded and ultimately how it ruled in this case about experiments that led to gene-edited children. But the trial was not public, which makes it hard for a journalist like me. To Eben Kirksey, assessing this non-public trial is part of being an anthropologist. As an anthropologist, uh, you know, my aim has been to kind of understand um, socio-legal traditions and, and cultural and historical context. Um, 
So don't presume that, you know, that there is this kind of universal Western norm that, you know, like that we treat the Chinese system as deficient because it has different um, procedural standards and um, evidentiary standards. Um, so, so, yes, it's something I, I explore at some depth in the book. Germline gene editing, as was performed by He Zhangqi, is now not permitted in China, and it's outlawed now in other countries and had been prohibited all along in a number of them. Germline gene editing is not considered ethically permissible in most countries either. In China, a law was passed that explicitly prohibits it. Before that law, it seems there was a bit of a gray zone in China. One day, tinkering with germline editing might be both legally permissible and ethically acceptable in certain clearly circumscribed circumstances. That day is not today. As Aben Kirksey explains, He Zhangqi, who did these experiments, had embraced an entrepreneurial spirit, a spirit of innovation and disruption that pervades Silicon Valley and also Shenzhen, China. He Zhangqi came to the U.S. as a student, completed his Ph.D. research at Rice University, and then was a postdoctoral fellow with Stephen Quake at Stanford University. Dr. Quake founded a number of companies, including Fluidime, Moleculo, and also Helicos Biosciences. He Zhangqi licensed the Helicos technology and built a company around it called Direct Genomics. Quake was on the board of Direct Genomics. Or not. Dr. Quake apparently denies that he was. Stephen Quake also said to Science and New York Times reporters he had heard about the plan by his former mentee to undertake experiments with gene-editing human embryos, implanting them, and taking the pregnancy to term. It's not quite clear when he heard this. Dr. Quake has been quoted as saying he tried to dissuade He Zhangqi from these experiments. In April of 2018, apparently He Zhangqi told Dr. Quake and a few others that a woman was pregnant. Embryos had been gene-edited with CRISPR, then implanted. He Zhangqi had big plans related to heritable gene editing. Those plans involved Dr. John Zhang, who founded a company called New Hope Fertility, based in New York. Zhang is a friend and kind of a mentor to He Zhangqi. In his book, Eben Kirksey talks about the plans by these two men, John Zhang and He Zhangqi had undertaken trips together, for example, to Hainan, an island, as Kirksey writes, known for beach resorts and medical tourism. It has a special zone set up by the Chinese authorities to promote and support cutting-edge technologies in medicine. Dr. He Zhangqi and Dr. John Zhang had raised money together, planned a fertility clinic to offer CRISPR babies to paying customers, babies with genomes edited before their birth. John Zhang has made headlines with his activities with in vitro fertilization. At New Hope's clinic in Guadalajara, Mexico, for example, his team performed mitochondrial replacement therapy. There was a pregnancy that led to the birth of a baby boy for a woman who had lost two children, an eight-month-old and a six-year-old, to a mitochondrially transmitted disorder. New Hope offers in vitro fertilization services, also pre-implantation genetic testing. That might be for conditions due to changes in a single gene, hemophilia A and B, Huntington disease, and Fanconi anemia. Clients can also select the gender of their future children pre-implantation by removing cells from a fertilized embryo a few days after fertilization in the lab. 
gender and something called embryo quality are assessed. And, quote, only high-quality embryos of the desired sex are transferred, it says on the website. Gene editing, according to a promotional video by He Jean-Cui, could be applied to diseases such as familial cancers or muscular dystrophy. And this had been the plan of the two men, a clinic to offer CRISPR babies, probably based in Hainan, China, to prevent conditions in future children. To my knowledge, the plans for this company have been put on hold. Back to He Jean-Cui and entrepreneurship. Here's Eben Kirksey. Yeah, I, I think for this case, you see a number of different traditions of ethics and values coming into conflict. And uh, I, I think fundamentally, um, you have someone who's operating in a system that very much values um, innovation, uh, disruption. Um, these are values that have emerged from Silicon Valley. You know, he was trained as a postdoc at Stanford brought back to Shenzhen, a city known for speed and innovation, with the idea that you would kind of bring that entrepreneurial culture to China. Um, Shenzhen has a very long history of doing things that, that are kind of at the cutting edge. And um, if, if you look way back to the reform and opening period, when, when China first started flirting with capitalism, Shenzhen was the zone, uh, official uh, experimental zone. You could do things um, with capitalism that were not permissible in other parts of China. This is a long tradition of uh, going after results in Shenzhen and only looking to Beijing for post hoc uh, approval um, after you already have results. And uh, JK was very much operating within that tradition, um, very much had support of different parts of the government on a local, regional, and national level. Um, but you know, I, I don't think he really anticipated the power of older norms and values. So during China's, um, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, Cultural Revolution of, of Chairman Mao, um, there was a big push to secularize the country, a big push to get past religious uh, values that were seen as, as being superstitious. Um, the idea of medical morality in China is very much a, a fusion of Marxist principles, socialist principles, as, as well as, as older principles in, embedded in um, a, a diversity of religions from, um, from Buddhism to Taoism. Um, and one of the things I think that separates the Chinese uh, tradition of, of medical morality from a, a Western bioethical tradition is, is different foundational roots. Um, so I, I think in, um, in Europe and in the U.S., uh, bioethics is, is uh, grounded in, in, in Christian norms. And in particular in the U.S., um, there's a lot of hand-waving every time someone starts to do experimental work with, with human embryos or, or even stem cells. Um, in, in China, there isn't that same um, concern. Um, you know, we're also dealing with a country that um, engaged in many uh, forced uh, uh, sterilization procedures, and by many, I'm, I'm millions, literally millions of forced sterilization uh, procedures during one-child policy, uh, forced late-term abortions, um, and, and even um, families were, were forced to give up children um, during one-child policy. In his book, The Mutant Project, Dr. Kirksey retraces He Jiankui's training in China, visits the village where he grew up. Ho Jiankui is sometimes abbreviated as JK. 
and you know, J- JK actually was born in this era. The, the, the one child policy wasn't uniform for um, he was born uh, uh, as, as the second child in the family and in rural areas like where he grew up. Um, there was an uneven enforcement of this policy. Um, but, but I think with, with this experiment, all sorts of different values came into conflict. So very much this, this spoke to um, these ideals of, of speed and innovation, which drive the economy of Shenzhen. But, but it was sort of a moment of reckoning, a moment of reckoning with the old guard of the Communist Party, um, but, but also uh, with the Chinese public who didn't have any concerns with earlier embryo editing experiments that were uh, preclinical. But all of a sudden, when there was an actual birth, um, the, the public was outraged. And um, again, I think this speaks to differences between a, a Christian tradition of bioethics and, and a Confucian or, or Taoist principle where the person uh, emerges at birth rather than at the moment of conception. So uh, in April 2015, um, when Dr. Huang at uh, Sun Yat-sen University used CRISPR for the very first time in non-viable human embryos, the Chinese public didn't even notice, really. Um, from talking to many people in broad sectors of society, um, I, I found few people who even remember that that earlier moment. But but in contrast, you know, uh, an experiment that puts the lives and, and health and well-being of, of of two actual human babies in jeopardy, that uh, generated widespread public outrage. So so you had, um, you know, the old guard of the Communist Party um, who very much value. Uh, uh, norms related to prudence and, and caution, doing the right thing at the right moment. You know, those were coming into conflict with, um, you know, the, the new, uh, in, innovator class, um, that's, that's very much, um, uh, in, you know, uh, in power and, and driving a, a city like Shenzhen. Um, but, but, but I think it's, it's, you know, these, these, um, earlier religious traditions, um, and values that, that really have been reanimated in recent years, even after the Cultural Revolution. Um, you know, the, that, that big push to kind of stamp out, um, what was seen as, as non-modern or, or mystical thought. You know, that's, that's very, very much still there. So, um, this, this experiment, you know, produced all kinds of, uh, debate and, and reckoning just amongst these different, different value systems. One important facet of these experiments is HIV. HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, matters with these gene-edited children because the goal had been to generate HIV-resistant people. They would be resistant to HIV from birth due to gene editing. The plan was to make a genetic change to confer HIV resistance to alter the CC chemokine receptor type 5, the CCR5 gene, which encodes a receptor on cells that HIV uses as a kind of molecular doorknob. The experiment was supposed to be a test case for potentially applying germline gene editing in other diseases. Ho Zhang Kui describes this in one of his promotional videos. 
one of the children, Nana, might be resistant to HIV because her CCR5 gene was disrupted. But since she is likely genetically mosaic, some of her cells have an intact CCR5 gene, so she might not be resistant. Lulu has one gene-edited allele, not two, and so she is less likely to be HIV-resistant. And she, too, is probably genetically mosaic. So it's hard to know if they are HIV-resistant or not. The gene CCR5 might fulfill many functions in the body, and it's unknown how this might affect Lulu or Nana or Amy. And there may be so-called off-target effects in their genomes, too. Hsiang Kui had recruited couples for this study who are HIV discordant. The wife is HIV negative and the husband HIV positive and being treated with antiretroviral drugs. The treatment of the men led the virus in their bodies to be undetectable. Individuals were recruited through an organization called Bai Hua Lin China, People Living with HIV AIDS Alliance. HIV follows um unusual patterns in China that don't necessarily map onto how we understand the disease here. One of the things that China does that's really good is that everybody for free is guaranteed HIV tests. Um, if, if you test positive, you're given free counseling, um, free drugs for life. Um, but there is a flip side to that. So um, I interviewed one guy who broke his arm and um any medical problem that you encounter, you have to first report to the infectious disease hospital as, as a as a lifelong HIV patient. And um, basically, when this guy who broke his arm reported to the hospital, they said, "Yeah, we can fix your arm, but it's it's going to take us three months to get a specialist who can come in and um, work here at, at the infectious disease hospital and, and do surgery." So he elected to do medical tourism and, and went to Thailand. Um, so, so pretty much once, once you have, um, HIV as, as part of your, um, you know, medical history, you know, that, that follows you around with incredible stigma. Um, mm-hmm. so people still routinely, um, lose, lose jobs, um, after colleagues find out that they're, um, uh, positive. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, a very uh, a situation um, of intense stigma too for for um, openly gay and, and bisexual people in, in China. So um, you can't have a baby if uh, uh, you don't have a, a, a marriage certificate, and you can't get married if, if you're gay in China. Um, so so many um, men opt for either um, negotiated relationships with lesbians. Um, that are sort of social fictions that everybody knows about, or other men who are deeply in the closet aren't even out to their to their wives. Um, wow. So so people are are navigating these very complicated um, social, social realities, and um, there are guidelines that prohibit the procedure of, of sperm washing and um, uh, fertility treatments for any HIV positive men in China. The couples were recruited for these experiments, which the lab called a clinical trial. But many say there are lots of reasons why this cannot be called a clinical trial, so let's call them experiments. The couples recruited for these experiments wanted a child, wanted the risk of HIV transmission to be low. 
making a child the classic way was either not working for them or they worried about the risk. I um, went systematically to every sort of um, leading IVF clinic in, in Beijing and Guangzhou and Shenzhen and sort of like asked them, um, you know, if, if I was HIV positive, could I have a child here? I was categorically told no. Um, a, a procedure that all couples go through when, when they go through IVF, you have to present your, your marriage license and you also have to submit yourself for a blood test. And if you're, mm. if you are detected as having HIV, you're, uh, disqualified, um, from, from using any kind of fertility, uh, uh treatment. So the options are either, uh, medical tourism abroad or some, somehow faking, faking a blood test, which is what was done in this experiment. Sperm washing has been the common practice for HIV-discordant couples. It is a way to gently process semen and sperm to remove any HIV particles. Then these washed sperm are used for in vitro fertilization. There's new knowledge that has emerged in just the last couple of years where undetectable equals untransmittable. So if you're on an antiviral regimen here, you're getting regular viral load tests you can make babies the old-fashioned way. In, in China, um, many of the sources who I spoke with said that um, viral load testing was was very intermittent and um, uh, unpredictable. So you might get a test and results might not come back for six to eight months, especially if you live in a rural area right. in China. So yeah. even, even with this new emerging clinical finding that um, serodiscordant couple, couples can't transmit the virus if, if the positive person stays on, on, on their um, regular uh, antiviral regimen, like that doesn't work in a context where um, the medical infrastructure is not providing you with, with reliable um, uh, viral load test, testing. Um, but even if you are controlling um, uh, your virus, uh, you, you can detect a seroconversion. So basically, when you're doing a blood test in those fertility clinics or, or elsewhere, if, if, you know, I went to do a blood test here um, in the States, um, what they would actually be looking for is, is seroconversion, meaning that um, uh, my, my body has started to make um, antibodies to, to the HIV virus. So that, that's what they'd be looking for. And those antibodies would still be present even if you were c- controlling the virus with, with your antiviral. Um. The couples in this experiment faced a bind. They wanted a child and needed to seek help. In a separate podcast, I talk a bit more about this situation with another scientist, Dr. George Annas of Boston University. As far as one can tell, the experiments in the lab in Shenzhen were stopped. But there are three children whose genomes have been edited before their birth. And there's a need to think about whether they run any risk, given, for example, because they are likely genetically mosaic. In the article in Nature Biotechnology, my interviewees talk about this, and there is more on this in other podcast episodes, too. I spoke, for example, with Dr. Kiran Musunuru of the University of Pennsylvania about that, and with Rudolf Jenisch of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Science. There are companies, it seems, that offer gene-edited babies to couples who wish to have a child and modify their genomes before their birth. In a search, I came across some companies in Cyprus, for example. So did Aben Kirksey. I actually, I, I chatted with somebody, like there was a chatbot that emerged and um, 
after I went through a couple of people, the claim that they were offering CRISPR and IVF treatments, is, it evaporated. But yeah, if you, if you Google CRISPR IVF, there's I think three or four clinics in Cyprus that showed up. According to a World Health Organization report, the WHO is setting out to set up ways for people to report possible illegal, unregistered, unethical, and unsafe human genome editing research and activities. It is likely going to be hard to police such activities and on a global scale. For Aben Kirksey, the gene-edited children and the experiments in the lab of He Jean-Cui at Southern University of Science and Technology pose a number of questions about gene editing and genomics. His book, The Mutant Project, has a subtitle, Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans. So in part, the title is an argument that um, editing is the wrong metaphor for, for CRISPR and that technical language describes it best. You know, CRISPR is a tool that produces targeted mutagenesis. Um, so, so this idea of, of refining a text like, like an editor or cutting and pasting isn't really faithful to how the technology works. You know, it, it produces targeted disruption. It scrambles DNA. Um, but, but in the book, I'm also engaging with... Um, you know, these stories that we have from, from science fiction, everything from the X-Men, which is about, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a civil rights parable um, written by two Jewish American authors about diversity and, and difference. And, um, yeah, I think we're at a moment where um, there could be these drives to homogenize the human species, to really take um, uh, eugenic science out of you know, its 19th and 20th century origins and put it in, in the hands of, of, of consumers and, and um, you know, reproductive clinics that, that um, aren't necessarily thinking through um, some basic questions about, about values and, and ethics, but really, you know, catering to whatever demands people might have of their children. So you want a, a child with big muscles target myostatin and uh, uh, you know a, a doctor might show you pictures like here's your child would look like Arnold Schwarzenegger but uh, it's really difficult to tweak a single gene and get some kind of improvement um, with with myostatin you will get big muscles if you knock out that gene but you also get a greater risk of, of heart disease and your organs will be smaller as, as you grow up. There are ways gene editing is being used and might be used. It would seem it's on everyone, not just scientists, to decide how and when, and the question whether it should be performed at all. Understanding and coming to grips with the experiments that have led to gene-edited children might enable discussion about what comes next in gene editing applications to people. Aben Kirksey is situating what happened and gene editing technology more generally within the question of what it means to be human. So, you know, for me, CRISPR reveals that um, earlier ideas about the power of DNA to, to make us who we are might be sort of oversized. You know, we're, we're sort of 20 years past the, the Human Genome Project. Um, there, there was a lot of speculation that um, un unraveling um, the code of life would kind of explain the essence of, of what it means to be human. And, and I think for anthropologists who often sit on the other side of, of the debate from biologists and, you know, older 
conversations about nature versus nurture, um, are, are really finding that you know some some of the consequential things that people were talking about in the 1990s, you know, related to sexuality, related to cognition and mental illness, um, it turned out to be genetically much more complicated than once was thought. So. There is no test for gayness, no, no genetic test. There's no genetic test for most mental illnesses. And um, the, the question of, you know, a single gene, a single allele being different in, in these, these children, you know, how consequential is that to, to their identity as, as humans? Um, so, so I think you could narrate this as a radical continuity. You know, there's... Um, in, in my mind, um, DNA is one important molecule amongst many in a cell that, that you can tinker with. Um, but what we're le- really learning from genomics is that genes are embedded in these really complicated genomes and that there might be interactions that we can't predict um, when you change one thing. Um, does, does that, how, how is that going to impact the organism? So I think that I, I think it's important to be humble, uh, to have humility as as we approach the human genome, to not assume that we can really foresee, um, you know, how one small change might impact a, a, an individual person or a group of people. Um, but I think these fundamental questions about what it means to be human, you know, these these are kind of on the line, and you know, will people get to count as fully human in, in a legal sense as as genes are changed. There's lots of dystopian science fiction that that points to many futures where certain kinds of people are discounted, are, are not deemed fully human. And uh, it, it could play in both ways. You know, we could see uh, new privileges being given to people who have genes that are modified. But we could also see, um, you know, if in particular, um, experiments go awry and produce monstrous outcomes that were not foreseen. You could you could see a, a world where a lot of stigma is attached to genetically modified people and genetically modified children. So, so I think a lot of that was evident in, in the early comments that emerged on social media. And I, I think it's still, you know, these images from popular fiction, from science fiction, um, you know, outsized ideas about the importance of DNA and, and human behavior and human identity. This all informs how we're understanding these these first two edited uh, human human children. That was conversations with scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Aben Kirksey of Deakin University. And just adding this here because there's confusion about these things sometimes. Deakin University did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. 